This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Ruslan, today we have the returns of. He is, he's a journalist. Uh, he is the future of journalism, I've decided. And he's a video maker and a teacher. He is Zan Azli. Yeah, 40-plus-year-old future of journalism. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And he is, uh, I, I think, the second time on the show. He was, he was backed by popular request. He's a chief strategy officer at Nort Labs, which is a consultancy. And he is Onkar Jin. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. Great to have you, Karjin. And our three topics this week are, topic number one is nonlinear journalism. Topic number two is what I learned about journalism by reading newspapers from the 1890s. And finally, topic number three is the anti-work movement, which I don't know much about it, but I'm all on board for that. <laughs> uh, so, Zan, nonlinear journalism. Yes, that's the topic that I'm bringing to the table for today. See, uh, I mean, I'm a journalist. I've been doing journalism for quite a while now. Uh, and I even teach journalism. And um, you see, every time when we talk about journalism, especially when I teach, right, uh, we're teaching the basics of journalism. I mean, some of the elements of journalism will never change. Things like uh, verifiability, credibility, accuracy, those kind of things not supposed to change, right? Uh, but the element of journalism that is constantly uh, evolving is the presentation, right? Uh, we are used to consuming news very much like, uh, like stories, very narrative, linear stories. You open up a newspaper, or even if you go to a website, a web news, news, uh, news portal, and you open up an article to read, it will be presented to you in, if it's a hard news article, it will be presented to you in the inverted pyramid format, where you see a headline, which will kind of explain to you what the story is, and then it goes into the first sentence of the article, which is the lead, which will tell you what the main point of the story is, and then you read, so on and so forth, and you see the points, right? So it's told to you in a very more or less linear way. You read the feature articles, the same title, you go into the introduction, and then you go into the climax, and then there's the conclusion, right? You always enter the story at one point, and then you finish it at another point, right? But if you, it's interesting for me to see that now, I don't know if it's because of the audience and the way the audience consumes uh, content now, or is it because there's innovation happening with the producers or with the content producers or with the journalists who are trying to experiment with different ways to tell stories? Um, the multimedia element of uh, digital platforms has now allowed stories to be presented in a very big way. Like if you cover a story, it's so in-depth and it's huge. And for, for readers or viewers who come in to consume the content, they can come in at any point right? Not necessarily at the beginning. They could come in in the middle. They could even come in at the end, but still get a holistic view of the story, right? And then later on, create their own path to understand everything about that particular story or that particular issue, right? Right now, if you go to websites like um, the Guardian, uh, New York Times, Malaysia Kini, our own Malaysia Kini, local Malaysia Kini, they have a website called Kini Labs where they have special reports and they are presented in interactive maps or interactive timelines. Interactive maps, for example, you open up a page, it's just a map there of a place. You hover your mouse or your finger or whatever and the pointer goes everywhere and you will see places where information comes out or you can click. And they have snippets of information, of a, parts of information of a bigger story. 
Mm. And you can consume it however you want, right? And to me, I think that's great because it allows the public to then craft out a narrative of their own, which then helps them understand an issue better. Have you ever, any of you experienced stories online like that before? Well, I guess. So when you mentioned Meisha Kenny, of course, there was the May 13th. They did a thing on May 13th, 1969. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's a good example. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it was a beautiful... Correct. Um, they did a story like that for... Yeah, interactive map and, and um, history telling where where you weren't necessarily following it blow by blow, but blow this blow and then you go back to the other blow and then... <laughs> but it really relies on the, the human interest story. I mean, you have to have an emotional hook. I mean, otherwise you're just putting stuff out there and no one's going to read it because it's boring. Correct. I, I think this is part of the... the and, and, you know, it could be because of the audience... Today, the audience tends to deep dive into issues that they are interested in, right? So it really depends if it's of interest to an audience, then they will deep dive. If the issue is of no interest, they're not going to come anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. Kajin, you're, you're, you're um, a consultant and you're, 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 you're selling this kind of thing, are you not, to your clients? I mean, how, how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, story, I mean, at the end of the day, storytelling is the heart of how we consume, well, understand the world, right? Uh, I mean, great example of the Malaysia Kini piece. Uh, I was uh, thinking of uh, a New York Times magazine piece uh, of Offshark and Minnow, where they portrayed like the whole South China Sea conflict in a way that, you know, you scroll down and you hear the sounds of the ocean, the, the fishing boats rocking against the sea, and the map zooms in. I think this kind of interactive manner is really a kind of adaptation because, you know, the problem we have nowadays is information overload. Everyone's telling something. Twitter is constantly tweeting. You know, it's it's crazy. And so we have to develop different ways of digesting the data and of understanding things that, you know, are frankly beyond anyone's comprehension that you can digest in like 10 minutes, right? Yeah, I wonder, you know, if there are lessons though also from the recent um, Russia-Ukraine in that there is also a, a return to and suddenly a, a desire to see the man-stroke woman in front of a camera saying, and right behind me, there are these explosions and this is what's happening. I mean, that's really old school. But suddenly at certain times, you, you sort of want to go back to old school. Don't you, son? You do, yeah, definitely. Especially when it comes to conflict situations, you want to see what's happening right behind you. You want to see a reporter there. You want to feel like, you know, you're seeing everything firsthand. But even even uh, an old school presentation like that can be fitted into a new school way of presenting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, videos like that are, for example, if you go to a multimedia presentation, if you click on a map, for example, you can have a reporter who's on the scene. It doesn't have to be live. It can be recorded, right? That, that person is, is there at, at that particular moment. Uh, there, there's this other journalism game that my wife and I experimented with. I forgot what the name of the game is, but it's where it, it, it talks about how refugees try to uh, run away to, um, to, to Europe. But it's an app. So it's a game. You download the app. You are the spouse of someone who has already managed to migrate to Europe and you are now trying to migrate over. And you're mm. communicating with your spouses already in Europe. And you're saying, okay, they give you selections of what to do. You pay off someone to take you on a boat. You buy a fake passport and all that. And you're reporting it back to your spouse until you reach Europe. That's the goal. Or you don't reach Europe, you die. And your, your spouse is sad, 
right? Yeah, yeah. I remember this. This was published by the BBC. It's uh, called Syrian, Re- Syrian Journey. Mm, mm, yeah. mm, mm. So this is so many ways. What an incredibly fun game. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? You can do it in real time as if you're really crossing borders over a course of six months. But, but Zan, can I, can I ask you, though? Because you, you mentioned a game which, is, which was paid for by the BBC. This is an this is old-school news broadcasting monolith, right? Now, you, very much you, are an independent journalist, right? Mm-hmm. How do you slot into, how do you tell stories and indeed make money out of that, this and using this kind of technique that you're talking about? Yeah, I don't know how yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm figuring it out. Look, uh, I, I've done a lot of multimedia presentations, right? Telling stories on all forms of platform, all, all different platforms. Uh, but it's always, again, been very ne- linear narratives, right? Linear narratives. Uh, so now I am trying to, to experiment with different ways. Uh, I'm looking at, like right now, for example, I'm actually producing a book, right? Uh, and in this book, it has small stories in the book with QR codes where you can scan. And then you'll see individual videos online about the stories that are in the book. Now, you can come in anywhere, right? Whether you go online, you find a video online, the video that you find online will then lead you to the book or to the rest of the video. It's not told in a linear way. It's almost like a montage of different stories. So I'm exper- in, in my own personal way, I'm, I'm experimenting with that too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Zand is definitely a mar- huge market for that because, you know, we live in a kind of moment where news, we expect to get news for free. We expect to get our news immediately. And against that, I mean, what I, I feel like what can independent producers do is you can't compete on volume or speed or all these kind of things. You're, you're just going to, I mean, you're going to die from the race to the bottom. But what you can do is, you know, do things like what Zan is doing, where you present something that's a lot more curated, a lot more, you know, put together and thoughtful. It brings together disparate threads. And I think people would be much more willing to pay for uh, like a service like what Zan is proposing uh, than try to convince them that you should subscribe to this news organization over this news organization that's free. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, but I, And I think that... Um... What Zan has said, well, I think, really will inform what we're about to talk about now in topic number two, which is what I've learned about journalism from reading newspapers from the 1890s. And so much of it, what, what you're saying, really resonates with what I discovered. Because you can find um, newspapers digitized on the internet um, quite easily. Uh, Australians are very good at putting this out. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can find just about every, all these old Australian uh, Newspapers, Singapore is very good, very good indeed. And um, Britain is very bad. You've got to pay a lot. But one bright spot, I happen to be doing some research on my Welsh family. and but So Welsh newspapers are all digitized, uh, which was really nice. And you can do a word search. You can, you can really boil it down, all the, you know, massive amounts of newspapers. So, anyway, so I'm reading through, reading through. And I realized when I, I was trying to find facts about a particular story that happened in Australia in the 1890s. And I realized I was finding such conflicting reporting on this particular thing. One person was said to be there. Another person then, another newspaper had said that that person was not there, but another person was there. And I say, well, make your bloody minds up. And, and I realized that I'd fallen for what I think is actually a, a kind of modern and short-lived 
phenomena, which is what Zan was talking about, with newspapers being about facts, about veracity, about truth-telling, because the newspapers back then were doing what they've become now, telling stories. And so you would take the, the, the raw material of an event and then the newspapers would tell the story that had the most engaging but also self-affirming for the reader. Because if it told how the natives in India were stupid, say, that w- I mean, the British reader would love that. So, you know, all these tropes were, were pro- copping up. And I thought, my God, I mean, all these newspapers. And it's like, where, how do you ever find out what actually really happened? And everything that ever happened went straight into myth. But also the 1890s were a time when... Um, Telegraph cables were being laid on, underwater for the first time. So you began to be able to get sort of real-time uh, fact-checking. And then that veracity thing was able to be possible because of technology. And uh, so that's just one aspect that I, I discovered from reading what were essentially British newspapers from around the world. But also it, how it was constantly affirming, reaffirming the cultural, political racial outlook of its reader and there was no there was no i I now do not trust newspapers ever again i don't see that the daily mail or whatever has ever changed no i think that's incredibly fascinating that what you pointed out because i mean the way i think about it and this is my logic is you know back then there was a scarcity of information you couldn't really verify and you know by the time you hear something from the quote-unquote far east you know it's been months right and they need to kind of exotify the story and make it kind of engaging and wow, you know, this faraway land and all this, you know, native nonsense is happening. And that kind of embellishment came from a scarcity of information, right? And then we went through this phase of veracity. And now we are back in a phase where, you know, um, a lot of viral news websites, they have to sell the story. They make it as sensational as possible. But it's the opposite problem, right? We have a deluge of information and just no one knows what to trust so the sen- most sensational the most viral the most crazy stories are the ones that get the most traction yeah Zan can it be sensational and still be trustworthy and still be I don't know shouldn't wouldn't we enjoy reading sensational stories and scandalous stories and <laughs> you, you know I think I would be very interested in reading you know hard news that were told in a very interesting way um, I understand, you know, the the issue of of yellow journalism and 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 you know, uh, trying to oversell a, a, a story or over dramatize a story. But if a story is already very interesting, very amusing, wouldn't people get interested? And in, 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 that should just be the way uh, uh, to 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 consume the news or to even to distribute the news. For example, the one MDB case. Delicious <laughs> issues have been coming out, and everybody suddenly back into one MDB. Blast from the past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, like for instance, I I I'm not so sure. I mean, like, how do you define interesting, right? So I I did do a little bit of a, a dive into the newspaper telling of the Jack the Ripper murders in East London in the 18 or well, going 1880s, and I realized when I was reading it that we now in this time kind of like oh Jack the Ripper like the dramas and you know who so much of it right and if you go onto Netflix I mean every other show is like the son of Sam the Zodiac killer the people who just go around killing women 
And yet, back then, it was not the lead story. It was not the most consumed story. The most consumed story was about dock workers who marched into London and there was a riot because they were demanding higher wages and, and better working conditions. And they were so angry with the chief of police that they, they kicked him out and they kicked him to here, to Singapore and Malaya. <laughs> but later, I mean, it was of interest, they sold it because all the victims were Irish prostitutes. And the East End was, and it was sold as the East End being this den of iniquity, this vile, disgusting, filthy place where barbarism takes place because they're all Irish. And what can you expect from the Irish? And in a way, we've continued that. So it's like, if you want to say interesting, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta tap into the the emotion and the fears of your present day audience. I mean, things are not just interesting in themselves. I, I don't think. I mean, how would you, I mean, you know, a lot of the stories that we cover in Malaysia, no one outside of Malaysia is interested. Suddenly, uh, what was it that, that, that minister was saying about beating your wives, you know, it's perfectly okay to beat your wives. It's across the world. You know, they find that interesting. They, they do. They do. They find <laughs> exoticism, I guess. Barbarism. Barbarism. <laughs> yeah. What can you expect from these foreigners? Right. Yeah. 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 But, but, I mean, I think that the veracity thing is short-lived and I think it's over. I mean, Zan, do you, I mean, you're old school. You want to tell the truth, don't you? <laughs> I think I do, yes. <laughs> but the pressure's against you, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, there was this like kind of golden age of journalism where I think journalists thought of themselves as kind of the great truth sayers and, you know, our job is we are the forefront state and we are a pillar of society and, you know, which is start, start contrast to, you know, before that age and now as well, where, you know, journalists are like, uh, I mean, not, not to say all journalists, but a lot of newspapers think of themselves as primarily sales, right? Mm. Like it's, it's all about the sales. Mm. Mm. I'm sorry, if you, if you choose to go to work for Rupert Murdoch, then, you know, what's your commitment to journalism <laughs> and, and truth-telling? Zan, would you work for Rupert Murdoch? Uh, I don't know him well enough. Uh, it depends on the pay package. Uh, but <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, so that's that's uh, that's uh, some of the some of the stuff I discovered whilst reading newspapers from olden times, and uh, it's fascinating. I love it. I love doing it, and you can do it from the comfort of your own home. So uh, we move on though, and uh, in a moment uh, we're going to come back with the anti-work movement here on a bit of culture on BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back with myself, Cam Ruslan, Zan Asli, and now Onkar Jin is going to tell us about the anti-work movement. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's fascinating that you just mentioned, like, you know, dot workers making a riot in the past, because, you know, this whole anti-work movement is coming out as, oh, newfangled, and, oh, it's such a, you know, new thing. But I think, it, I mean, it has its roots very deeply in sort of like union movements, um, labor rights movements, um, that has happened over centuries, right? So, you know, the anti-work movement now, I mean, it started as a whole Reddit thread, as, you know, all these internet things do, where people were basically saying, you know, we're tired of work. You know, we, why are we working? And, you know, the pandemic is like this point of this inflection point for so many people. I mean, you know, people are talking about the great resignation now. And the latest figures show us that as of um, 4th of January, 2022, in November, 4.5 million Americans quit their jobs voluntarily, right? That's that's like 3% of the entire workforce. 
which is huge. And, and you know, people are just quitting in droves and droves because they're fed up of work and they just don't think it's worth it, quote unquote, to work anymore. Hmm. And uh, it's it's three percent. I mean, this is a big is this a big thing? Is this or is this one of those things like you know uh, killer bees coming this season <laughs> and they, they never turn up? You know. Well, I mean, I think um, you know even in uh, you know that's that's America, but I think even in Malaysia, people are feeling you know there's a sort of cultural moment now where we are rethinking our relationship between work and life, right? So you know, um, you know, just this morning I was checking out this. Instagram account that, I mean, the last I checked, it had 5,000 followers. And now when I just checked it, it has like nearly 9,000 followers. So it's blowing up. And it's this Instagram account called the Malaysian Pay Gap. And it's basically, you know, droves and droves of people who are talking about their working conditions, how much they're paid. And people are angry. People are fed up. And they don't think that the current situation where employers feel like you know, they're doing you a favor every time they pay you a paycheck. That's not sustainable anymore. Mm. Hey, we're going to start right here, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> Zan, you, uh, you're freelance, like me. Uh, are you, uh, are you, who are you going to shout at yourself as your employer? I, I treat myself very well. Um, no, no, I, I find it totally relatable, even though uh, during my time when I decided to go freelance or be self-employed was because of that. You know, I wanted a better work-life balance. I, I wanted to work on projects that I felt was worthwhile. Uh, I wanted to be paid what I felt I was worth, you know. So even though it wasn't called the anti-work movement back then, or it wasn't known as the anti-work movement back then, I, I identify, I can relate, you know. And I think this is something that should be given more thought uh, in order to be more productive, really, I think. Yeah, but is this, is this us being a soft society? Because I think back to, uh, I think very much our father's, I mean, I wouldn't say mothers because our fathers were the only ones who were allowed to work. Well, he's my father because I'm a bit older than you. Um, you know, job for life, job security uh, was so important. And you work till you retire. Perhaps you get a pension. That's security because a lot of these, you know, they, they were born in or grew up during the war and things were scary. And now we have the luxury to be able to say, oh, I don't want to work like that anymore. I'm going to go and, I don't know, grow vegetables and grow my hair long like Zanasli. That's true though. That's true though because uh, like I feel like the choices that I've been able to make for my career and for my personal life, I would not have been able to do it if I didn't have, you know, working class parents who provided for me, <laughs> you know. So maybe it does come from uh, a little bit of a, a, a privileged uh, place. Uh, but I mean, I don't know if you're looking at the entire, you know, the whole of society moving that way, that's just how it's going to move forward, you no, know, for the development of society. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think like, um, you know, when we look at, I mean, just looking at the numbers, right? I mean, our salary increases have not kept up with inflation, right? And this year, it's reported that in Malaysia in particular, we have had the lowest salary raises as a, you know, as a country, a median wage raise in the entire Asia, right? So I think people are right to kind of look at the calculus and say, wow, even if I work, even if I get a raise now, it's still not going to keep up with inflation. And that's an entirely different kind of condition of work than what our parents had, where, you know, at the very least, I think for most of our parents, you know, they could say you work hard, even if you're very working class kind of job, you can still afford a property, you can still afford a car, you can send your kids 
to school. And now I think there are diminishing returns to work and people are saying, you know, if work isn't going to pay me enough to afford a property, then let me at least have some work-life balance where I have some agency in the kind of work that I want to dedicate myself to. Or invent new types of work. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're moving away from the, the world of making things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, or, yeah, the amount of young people I meet who say, oh, I want to be a YouTuber. Um, mm. Or slightly older people who say, oh, I want to be a consultant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what's that? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a matter of, um, you know, people wanting to express their own autonomy and agency as well, right? Like, uh, I think that in the past, our, you know, a lot of our parents say, you know, son, you have to work so that one day you can become your own boss, right? And in a way that the kind of freelance idea is, you know, yeah, you should become your own boss. And maybe you don't have to wait 20 years to come out of your own company. But, you know, where I kind of like pull back a little bit is that, you know, freelance comes at a cost, right? Mm. And and people, it comes with risks, right? It comes with, you know, there's no benefits, where's your EPF? And the, I mean, the whole gig economy exposes people to, to risk as well, right? Yeah. Zan, you've got children, right? They're quite young. And what do you imagine that they're going to, what kind of work do you think that they're going to, work, work world are they going to enter into? Uh, I, I don't think I can even imagine because I remember when I first started working and I was going to work in like t-shirt and jeans and my father was like, what, do people do that now? And this was in 1999, you know, he was like, whoa, what's this? Are you really going to work? Or are you going to the mama, you know? Uh, so like for my kids, and I've, I've understood that now after so many years that there's going to be jobs and careers that I can't even imagine when my children start working, you know? Um, my daughter has so many interests uh, that I don't know. I can't even, I, I don't even know how to guide her <laughs> to mm. see what is, would, would eventually become her interest to then develop into a career or a profession, you know? Yeah, and it's moving so fast, the development so fast. I, yeah, I can't really answer that question. What, uh, can I ask the two of you, what did your parents expect you to do? What do they want you to do? Kajim, what, what, what did they, did they ever say? Well, you know, they, they did, uh, you know, give me lectures about find a good job and stay there for five years at least and, uh, and kind of build a career and, you know, buy property, you know, the whole, uh, <laughs> the whole Malaysian uh, capitalist journey in a nutshell. Um, but, but I think, um, you know, what, what I've, I've seen in the job market is that the people who the most savvy employees are the ones who actually, you know, they, they keep jumping from job to job in industry and industry. And every time they jump, they have like 10, 20% salary raises. And those are the people who are most flexible and actually quote unquote winning in the labor market. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess, you know, that mode of work isn't quite what it used to be. And I think part of that fault lies with employers as well. I mean, yeah, I think about my, my parents' generation. That's just, that's it, it, inconceivable. Jumping, jumping, jumping. What, what, what? That's, yeah. <laughs> Hopscotch. Hopscotch. I mean, you get, you get, you've got a car, you've got a car parking space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stick with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Zan, so, yeah, I mean, you talked about your, your, your kids, but your parents, did they, did they, I mean, do they still look upon you like, oh, Zan, where did it all go? <laughs> what, what, what did we do? Why do you hate <laughs> us so much? <laughs> no, my parents were quite liberal. They just told me and my brothers, they told us, he said, look, do whatever you want. 
just don't be bankers because they were bankers. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I just said, do whatever you want, just don't be bankers, you know? And uh, yeah, I mean, when I started working, I had a full-time job. They were okay with it. Uh, then when I wanted to go on my own. I wanted to freelance. I wanted to be self-employed. They were worried, but they didn't say no. They said, okay, let's try it. You know, they, they allowed me to try whatever I wanted to try. Uh, they were very worried, actually. Uh, but when they saw that, you know, after many years, it was okay. I was going to, it was quite stable. I knew what I was doing. It was going all right. I could raise a family. And then they were like, hey, actually, okay, you know, we don't understand it. But he's doing all right, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So, I think I'm going to do that with my kids too. I might not understand what they're going to be doing, but, you know, just yeah. <laughs> have faith. What did you have? Like, what were you supposed to grow up into? Oh, well, you know, my, my father died when I was very young, so I, I didn't get any guidance from there. My mother was very much like, you know, what are you going to do? Just you go do it. Mm. You know, just don't, just off you. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't, I had the opposite of guidance. And here we are now. Um, but I think, though, that the th- when we think about three generations, the change between my parents, God, if I go back to my grandparents, oh my God, the changes. And then we think of Zan's kids. But if I think back in history, post industrial revolution, three, three generations each time have had to face inconceivable change from, from one to the next. But yeah, Zan, I don't know what your kids are going to find. It's going to be <laughs> yeah. fascinating. But I, I hope they remember your da- their dad. You I know? hope so too. <laughs> yes. I, let, we must send him some of those universal credits. <laughs> <laughs> he says he's hungry and cold. Is he still alive? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, we move on to um, – it's not going to be like that, by the way. They love you, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> we move on to the final part of the show, uh, recommendations. We recommend something that we think uh, might be of interest. And Zan goes first. Oh, okay. Uh, I want to recommend a show. It's a show <laughs> on a streaming platform called True Stories. Uh, it's created, written, and starring uh, Kevin Hart, who is a comedian. But the show is not, it's not a comedy. It's actually very depressing and very, uh, it's very stressful to watch. But he's great in it. And uh, my wife was just telling me that she's noticed, uh, we've noticed that a lot of comedians now have been moving on to doing like really serious shows and serious roles to show that they have acting depth, right? Uh, Kevin Hart is one of them with his new show, True Stories. And, uh, and uh, Melissa McCarthy, she acted in this movie called The Starling, right? Yeah, so, so I don't know. I saw that Kevin Hart's like, wow, he's not just a comedian. He can act. And he acts so, it makes me feel so much discomfort that my wife and I decided we can't watch the show at night anymore because you can't go to sleep, right? So I'm, I, I want to recommend that, True Stories by Kevin Hart. All right. I sense the discomfort in the trailers and I thought, I don't, I don't, want, I don't need any more discomfort in my life. <laughs> but he plays a comedian, doesn't he? He plays a stand-up yes. comedian who then things go wrong. Yes, that's right. Yeah, right. yeah. Very yeah. stressful show. Okay, so it's called um, True Stories. True Stories. Yes, True Stories. Okay. Uh, I, I, maybe I'll try it. I don't know. I'm scared. <laughs> um, my recommendation really relates to what I was talking about just now with the, the newspapers. Uh, you, you can find old newspapers. If you look around, you'll find that certain places you've got to pay, forget those. But there are places like Singapore. Singapore, um, the newspapers, are they're all online and they're all free. And um, you can word search you know, you can choose the language that you can access, you know, understand that you're not, you're not going to get the truth. If it's the Straits Times, say from 1930, it's essentially a British newspaper. It's British storytelling. Um, But it's really interesting. If you read day after day after day, uh, you get a sense of stories developing in a kind of a linear style. 
and you start to grow relationships with these people and you start to really think of them as being alive right now. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's, uh, it's a great thing to do. And it's wonderful that you can really word search. You can choose, you know, Kuala Kangsa. And then, and not just Kuala Kangsa in the Straits Times, but you can go to these Welsh newspapers and type in Kuala Kangsa. And like, you know, something may come up. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I typed in Malaya. No, I typed in Perak, Perak into these Welsh newspapers. And there was a whole bunch of stuff from the 1880s about, you know, a guy going around South Wales, giving lectures about the, um, the financial opportunities in investing in Perak. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's my recommendation. Check out old newspapers online. Uh, Kajin, what's yours? Yeah, well, um, I'm going to recommend people check out this Instagram page called Malaysian Pay Gap. That's the one I mentioned earlier. But I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, they say that what they want to try to do is, you know, advocate for pay transparency and look at, you know, kind of like collective action so that, you know, um, how many years are you working and how much are you paid? Are you being paid the market rate, right? And um, I think it's 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 both disheartening um, and kind of quite interesting to look at all the different salaries and work experiences and life experiences of, you know, now there's like dozens and dozens of people putting how much they earn, how many years they've worked, what their work-life balance is like. And I think everyone should take a look at this to really see what's going on in the Malaysian labor market and see, you know, where do you stand? Yeah, checking that out sounds much, much more scary than watching Kevin Hart's... Um... Yo, no, I, I think, I think uh, a lot of people will be in for a shock. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it might, know, it might get some people thinking about their own jobs and their own, oh no, am I in the right job? Or, you know, or for all you know, you might be like, oh, thank God I'm in this job. Yeah, I'm going to recommend Plato's new writing now uh, after <laughs> Kajin's recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like old old things that people used to do, like work hard, save up, and be able to send their kids overseas for education. This is like, it's beyond no, it's, people's it's not capability. Happening. And that, that was a bedrock of, of Malaysian middle class aspirations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think honestly, I think that's why you know there's such a huge interest in you know the the dirty word NFTs and cryptocurrency amongst the younger generation nowadays because you know they see their pay and they're like, oh, you know, uh, if I put this in a bank and the interest rate is like what two percent, three, you know, I'm never going to be able to afford to send my kids overseas, so I might as well just take a risk and pray that somehow this thing is going to double or triple and maybe then I'll be able to afford to send my kids to, you know, an education overseas. Yeah, it's like the obsession with buying 4D numbers. Huh? Yeah, yeah, you know, because if the system seems kind of broken, then maybe you should just take bets nowadays. Hmm. It reminds me, I think I saw an, uh, an Onion headline, which is 90% uh, of uh, Americans' retirement plan still depends on finding a bag full of cash. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, I was like, "Hey, that's my plan." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's honestly not too far from the truth, right? Because you know, like you know, like the the whole system is flush with stimulus checks, and you know that's how Wall Street bets came about. And everybody is—I mean, it seems like the whole market was buoyant because everybody was instead of you know paying for groceries or student loans, they're putting it into the market because that seems the best way to use your money. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, on that happy note, 
folks. <laughs> Joyous. <laughs> yes, you and your kids are never going to get an education. But on that happy note, um, we, we come to the end of this week's show, and it only remains for me to thank Onkajin. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Zan Asli, I hope your kids are not thinking that they want to have an education. <laughs> I hope not too. <laughs> they'll, they'll go to some online university. <laughs> yeah. Have you been subtly kind of like putting this in? It's like, you know, universities, they're not that great, you know? Ah, YouTube tutorials are enough. You you know? YouTube, <laughs> yeah. Khan Academy 3.0. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I look forward to that. So, um, and, and, and myself, Cam Rasland, so please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. <laughs>